the British colonial slavery is in the past, but the effects of it are very much in the present. So social and economic conditions in Jamaica, where James Dick made his money, the conditions today are very much the result of that history. That was historian David Alston talking about a teaching fund based on the proceeds of the historic slave trade. We'll hear more from him in a featured interview later in the show. Well worth 10 minutes of your attention. Hello and welcome to The Stooshy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by Derek Healy, Adele Merson and Justin Bowie to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. Last time we convened in our virtual bunker here, the Chancellor was just off his feet with a radical set of plans for all of us. And since then, all hell's broken loose. Amazingly, at the time, I heard this being referred to as Britain being a bit like a Petri dish uh, for a particular ideological experiment, um, like we're all just in a wee test lab. So we'd start off this week with a, a new and presumably quite short feature, hopefully, So here we go with week one in the Petri dish. Um, The headlines in the past week, of course, markets spooked by 45 billion tax cutting measures, which critics point out had little detailed funding. Bank of England had to step in to avert further chaos. The pound hit historic lows. And thanks to all of this strong work, Labour have been crushed into a 33 point lead in the polls, which would give them a whopping majority if a general election were held today. Okay then, fellow culture of the Petri dish, how is the experiment feeling to you? Well, it's been pretty cold so far. It's all been a bit list trust and quasi-quarting in this budget this week. It's been all over a bit of a nightmare, hasn't it, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are you seeing the, 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 the reaction panning out? I mean, it was only a week ago we were talking about this, and it was, he was just off his feet. It's, it really didn't take a lot of time to sink in. I mean, what, uh, how, how, how startling have you found it? Well, it's amazing to think that all this, you know, all this sort of economic collapse has happened since the last stushy. I mean, I think when you guys recorded it last week, that was just, just happening, just being announced. Um, we didn't really know what it was going to look like or what the reaction was going to be. And in the space of a week, it's been absolutely calamitous. Um, and of course, you've got um, Liz Trust doing the the interview rounds as well, and and that was calamitous also. Yeah. Um, that really didn't go very well. So it's it's been absolutely remarkable. Yeah, she was kind of uh, posted missing, and then came out in the the round of local BBC radio interviews and on BBC Scotland as well yesterday. But um, I think some people thought she might get an easy ride on that, but uh, it was absolutely far from it. Justin, you, you know, we were talking about the polls there, but you, you just uh, were having a wee chat with Scotland's foremost polling expert just before we went um, into this recording today. I mean, what, what's 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 it looking like with uh, if the Tories continue this kind of downward spiral? Well, at a UK level, there was a shock YouGov poll yesterday which showed Labour on, I believe, 54 points to the Conservatives on 21 Obviously, Labour have been in the lead in the polls for a while at a UK level, but this was next level. This was the biggest polling lead that really any party has had in a long, long time. How that could play out in Scotland is obviously then of supreme interest to us. So I spoke to Sir John Curtis. It's important to note with these polls that any figures from Scotland are subsamples, so they're not entirely reliable in the way that figures from down south might be. However, if there is a Conservative collapse, then... it, it Reasons that that is also going to happen to a degree in Scotland as well. One of the most interesting areas will, of course, be the North East. That is a Conservative stronghold. And if they were to collapse up here, while they might lose some votes to Labour, Sir John Curtis pointed out that the SNP may still be the beneficiaries of that in terms of gaining seats. 
Obviously, the SNP are, I suppose, second place in a number of Conservative seats, including, of course, Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross's seat. Elsewhere in the country, Labour would, of course, hope to make gains, but their issue is that they are quite far behind the SNP in a lot of urban seats that they used to hold. Obviously, some of those seats may be competitive and they would have a chance of making some gains. But it is interesting that despite Labour having an absolutely massive lead at a UK level, that's not necessarily going to translate into them batting off the SNP. So it could be a situation like we had in 2019 where you have one party winning a big majority, but the SNP continue to remain quite strong in Scotland if their vote doesn't decline at all. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned Douglas Ross there. Adele, you, you've been covering a bit more of the, the goings-on in, in the Conservatives' backyard. What What's Douglas Ross been saying, or how's he looking since this um, this week's gone by? I mean, it's a big week. Yeah, um, I think it's it's been a little bit hard to pin him down, but he, he certainly hasn't, um, you know, he hasn't distanced, distanced himself from the mini-budget and, and seems to kind of just sort of quietly be going along with it, hoping that those kind of tax cuts will be replicated up north. So... Yeah, a bit of a, a bit of an awkward one for him, I think. Well, certainly going through his mind as well will be what happened when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister and Douglas Ross sort of was accused of flip-flop, well, accused, he, he did flip-flop on whether he supported Boris Johnson or didn't support John, Boris Johnson. And of course, he's now allied to a, a new Prime Minister who's really not making things easy for him. Yeah, I think we'll have to be on flip-flop watch again when it comes to this one and, and his potentially changing stances. Uh, I'm assuming criticism is going to continue to build about this mini-budget, but um, at the same time, I imagine Mr Ross is, he's obviously had his troubles with Boris Johnson. He's probably not going to want to build up a reputation as a leader that's constantly, while while he will want to position himself as his own man with his own opinions and stance, he also won't want to position himself as somebody that's constantly going up against the leadership. But I guess time, the you know, the weeks and months ahead will probably tell if there's enough of a backlash, he may eventually uh, sort of join yeah. in. We never know. We'll have to keep a watch. Yeah. Well, he was, he was collared a wee bit by journalists in the Scottish Parliament yesterday after First Minister's questions, which was all about, um, obviously, Nicola Sturgeon, um, not the Conservatives, but people were quite interested to get a handle on what he thinks of Liz Truss and, and the economic package, and he did kind of give a little bit more, say, accepting that he was a bit worried about people's mortgages, including probably his own. Um, so, you know, he's already clearly publicly picking up the this sort of lightning rod of anger, and if it starts to hit everyone's mortgages, then a lot of his own voters are going to be wondering, "Well, if you can see it happening to us, why are you, why are you not doing something about it and speaking up?" So, yeah, a pretty tough few days ahead for him, I would imagine. I think it must be really difficult as well for for conservatives in Scotland because when Liz Trust had these media rounds, um, she really offered nothing up in terms of an explanation. In fact, she tried to sort of deflect and say. Mm. Actually, it's got nothing to do with us. It's to do with the situation in Ukraine. It's to do with all these things. When I think everybody really understands that it was the markets getting spooked at this money budget. I think people, I think just you know, your general person in the street understands that it did have an effect. So to just say, oh, it's got nothing to do with us. And then on top of that, the sort of what we've seen in reaction to it has been a move towards. Um, well, there was, there was reports that they're going to ask departments to kind of cut their budgets and find cost savings and things, which is right back to austerity. And people remember that, you know, Boris Johnson, this isn't, you know, we're not talking years and years and years ago, I think it was November 2019, he came out and said, 
um, that he disagreed with austerity and that wasn't the right thing to do. And now we're heading right back to that. So it's a thing that just a couple of years ago, this same party, the same party in government told us wasn't the answer. That's what we're heading back to. So how yeah. do you, if you're Douglas Ross, start to defend that and start to explain it to, to, to Scottish voters? It's incredibly difficult, I think. Yeah. And meanwhile, everyone's saying, you know, Rishi Sunak, basically, he told you so. He was the one who was talking about Liz Truss having some really quite, what did he say, irresponsible, I think, the um, reckless kind of words like mm -hmm. that being banded around about her tax plans. And uh, lo and behold. So, yeah, time will tell. Anyway, let's let let's not leave people in any doubt. We are going to proceed straight to the award we usually deal with at the end of this show. So, to the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, congratulations. You are the Stoosh of the Week. Stoosh, 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 stoosh of the Week. Now, the furore over Britain's colonial legacy and financial gains from the historic slave trade have dominated national headlines in recent years, and they continue to have repercussions all over. But as people become more aware of how deep these foundations go, one story's perhaps slipped under the radar nationally. Callum Ross has been investigating the links between historic slavery and a fund in the northeast of Scotland which supports teachers. Known as the Dick Bequest, it's it's about £1.8 million worth of legacy left by forest-born merchant James Dick almost two centuries ago. Callum first covered this after historians, including David Alston, uncovered the link in a book. Uh, he's since reported on the trustees jumping ship and Aberdeen University turning on it. He caught up with David uh, now that the fund finally appears to be getting some wider attention. In an interview this week, Callum started by asking David to explain how the money came to be in Scotland in the first place. Okay, the Dick bequest is money that was left by a man called James Dick who came from Forres. Um, he went to the West Indies, to Jamaica, and he made money there along with a partner called Robert Milliken. Uh, uh, the two of them were in, engaged in various kinds of business, but that included slave trading. Not slave, not slave trading in the sense that they took enslaved people from Africa across the Atlantic, but they were the middlemen. So when enslaved people arrived in Jamaica, uh, Dick and Milligan were one of the, the people who, who sold them on. So they're very much involved in that trade in human beings in the 1760s, 1770s. Uh, they both came back to London. James Dick lived until the 1820s. When he died, he left over £120,000 to set up an educational trust, which, when it was originally set up, was intended to supplement the salaries of schoolmasters in Aberdeenshire, Banff and Murray. So it was very clearly money that was derived from slavery. Um, he set up the trust while Britain still had slavery in its colonies. And that money is still there today and still being used. The terms of the trust have changed a little bit. But the, the money is still being used for educational purposes. Um, it's clearly derived from slavery. And it's money that it seems to me and to quite a lot of other people belongs in Jamaica not in Scotland. I mean, you say that, David, but I mean, isn't there an, an argument that, you know, the legacy of the crimes of the past, the empire, slavery, you know, they're all around us. Why why pick on this little teaching fund and deny um, local teachers and schools in, in Scotland the, the benefits? I mean, the, the current generation of Scots weren't involved, wasn't involved in, in slavery, were they? 
the, the British colonial slavery is in the past, but the effects of it are very much in the present. So social and economic conditions in Jamaica, where James Dick made his money, the conditions today are very much the result of that history. Uh, why why should we focus on this particular fund? Well, I think um, be, because it is clearly identifiable as a fund derived from, from slavery. And it's not the only example of that. I think the, a very clear parallel about which people are concerned are money came from colonisation, um, the, um, the, the Cecil Rhodes, who left money to Oriel College in Oxford. And it's actually a very similar amount. He he left £100,000, James Dick left £120,000. And the same concerns have been expressed about Cecil Rhodes' legacy at Oriel College in Oxford. There were, you know, there have been protests in the streets, there have been calls to remove his, his statue from the front of Oriel College. So looking at the James Dick bequest is is not unique. And I think what also what makes this different is that there is something that can be done about it. Um, because the money is still there, it's something that could where the, the, the fund could be redirected, it, its benefits could be redirected to, to Jamaica. So something can be done in this case, whereas in, in many cases it's very difficult to find something that, that can be done. I should also say that uh, I mentioned uh, James Dick's partner, Robert Milligan. Until 2001, Robert Milligan's statue stood outside the Museum of London in London Docklands. And as almost as soon as Black Lives Matter campaign got underway, uh, the Museum and the Docklands Authority took the decision uh, to remove that statue. They didn't wait till public pressure mounted. They recognised immediately that it, it was simply offensive to have that statue there. And so they, they, they quickly removed it. So action has been taken on Robert Milligan and his legacy um, in London. I, I think this is the opportunity for Scotland and, and particularly for the, the North East to, to do something similar and do something similar that would have an immediate benefit in Jamaica. But it's been, it would be fair to say you've been disappointed with with the response to date from from both the trustees that oversee this bequest and and uh, the Scottish government as well. Yes, it's been it's been disappointing. And maybe if I begin with the trust itself first, the the, the people who run the trust are actually called the trustees are called governors of the trust, and there are or there were ten of them, um, two elected by the Senate of Aberdeen University two by Aberdeenshire Council and one by Murray Council. And the other five are elected by an organisation called the Society of Writers to the Signet, who are a group of senior, and I think they would think of themselves as, to some extent, elite lawyers uh, in Edinburgh. We, so we, I became aware of this um, through a colleague, Donald Morrison, uh, who's a former history teacher in Aberdeenshire, and together we researched the background to the trust, produced a report, and sent that to the trust um, through their through their secretary, um, and certainly sent you know sent that in the spirit that you know this was information we didn't think they would be aware of, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure they weren't, and it was an opportunity for them to sit down and, and think. Uh, you know, we find ourselves in this position as trustees. What should we do about it? And the re- and the response was frankly disappointing. Um, it was it was f- fundamentally a a refusal to engage in any further discussion about it. So the answer was no, they weren't going to do anything about it because they claimed they couldn't do anything about it because they, their initial claim was that they were the, 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 the terms under which they operated were directed by Scottish government. So that, that's not that's not that's not 
quite true. Um, but they, they said they couldn't do anything about it. They weren't going to do anything about it and they didn't want to talk about it. Uh, so that was disappointing. Uh, we drew it to attention of Scottish government. Now, Scottish government don't have the, uh, the ability to direct the trustees of any charity. Um, what I do think they've got the power to do is to have an opinion. And it, it's uh, my disappointment there would be that I, I would have liked there have, to have been something from Scottish government saying, OK, we, we don't have the powers to say what should happen, but we think something should happen. I would have hoped they would have seen the the justice of seek, seeking to some way of returning these funds to Jamaica. I understand you've been disappointed with the response, but it's not a straightforward, right, we'll change the use of the money. There are legal issues here, aren't there, and charity yes. kind of regulations. It, it, is, it is complicated. And I would say that the I mean, all, all Scottish charities have to register and, and sort of pass inspection with the um, the office of the Scottish charity regulator known as Oscar and Oscar have been helpful I mean they've they've identified potential steps that the trustees could take to to change the terms of the trust it's complicated the first but the first thing you need is a will to change if there's a will to change and we're looking at a, you know a body where the half of the trustees are, are lawyers if they wanted to change um, I think there's a good chance they could find a way of making the change. So yes, it's complicated, but I don't think that should be uh, an excuse for starting the discussion. And the starting, uh, and uh, as well as that will to make the change, I, I think what's important is to to engage with Jamaica, um, and we we have a we we have been able to make contacts with. Um, with, with senior academics there uh, who would willingly enter into the into discussions about how this might be achieved yeah I mean you you've obviously called for the money to be returned to Jamaica but like you say there you know, you know there would need to be a process to determine uh, you know a, a resolution I mean what what would you like to see some kind of some kind of summit involving you know Jamaican representatives uh, and the various organizations involved or what, what have you any ideas any thoughts on the kind of process if, if there was a way to change the use of this money what how 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 should it be decided what what could be done with it um, I think things need to happen at two levels I, I would like Scottish government in any case to be in discussions um, with Jamaica um, I mean Scotland all Scotland's a devolved administration. Scotland has a foreign policy. So Scotland's recently op opened uh, an Nordic office in, I think, in Copenhagen. It, Scotland gives aid internationally with a focus on, on Malawi and I think, I think Pakistan. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and there are, there are Scottish, Scottish ministers will visit the United States. We should be doing something similar with the Caribbean. Um, and, and in this case with Jamaica. So I think getting into these discussions at, at, at government level should be happening anyway. And if that was happening, one of the things that should be being discussed is the specifics of the dick bequest. Um, but I think what, 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 the trust, what the trustees need to do is to get into, the, into discussions more with people who are capable of acting more on the ground in Jamaica, which is why I think the connection with the University of the West Indies is important and would be important for the future because what needs to be found is a way of making sure that this this fund which is an educational fund that has been benefiting children in Scotland for almost for 200 almost 200 years um it we need to make sure that the the benefits go on the ground in Jamaica just on your previous point in terms of 
the Scottish government. I mean, do you think Nicola Sturgeon and Angus Robertson and you know the Scottish government are they missing an opportunity here to kind of lead the way in terms of in terms of reparations and the debate around reparations? Um, I think I think all political parties in Scotland are missing an opportunity because, uh, as far as I can see, um, none of the manifestos in the, the, the last election in Scotland mention the issues of the issue of reparations, and yet it's going to be a key international issue over the next decade. And yes, I think I, th- I think the I think specifically the Scottish government, because they're they're in power, are missing an opportunity where they they could show a different way of doing things. And I think that, I'm not sure that, that would change how things are happening at UK level, but it, it, it would set an example. And uh, maybe at some point there, w- there, w- there would be moves to, to follow that. So I think, yes, I think I think it's an opportunity that should be seized. To find a kind of way forward out of this deadlock, you, you called on the organisations that, um, that appoint the governors to effectively stop appointing the governors to walk away um we've seen last week the first organization uh, aberdeen university decided to go down that road and they voted the senate of the aberdeen university voted to to cut its ties with the dick bequest and uh, there's been a bit of a, a debate at aberdeenshire council as well a, a, a councillor who's put forward to the trust decided not to take on that job i mean are you are you seeing signs are you becoming hopeful that 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 they're starting to move in the right direction that they might that we might be heading towards a a, a solution uh, uh to in terms of what what's going to happen to this money and 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 whether to send it back to jamaica yeah i think there are signs there are reasons for hope i mean it's sm- it's small steps but but I think there are steps in in the right direction. And I think what the, the Senate of Aberdeen University have done is is the correct thing. Um, I, I think it's been interesting that since then the Society of Writers to the Signet have said what the all what all of the organisations who nom, who appoint trustees have said is that once once they appoint trustees, the trustees they they can't direct the trustees to act in a particular way. But they, the Society of Writers have said that they could they could assist the trustees in seeking a solution. These organisations either they stop they could stop appointing trustees, and in that case, then the um, Oscar, the Scottish Charity Regulator, would have reason to step in, um, and I, I think that that could provide opportunities for reassessing what the trusts for and what should be done with it. Um, if they decide to go on appointing trustees. Um, these trustees have a limited term of office. They should be appointing people who they know are committed to changing the trust. I don't see any reason why they shouldn't do that if 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 they if they're not prepared to 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 step back as the Senate have done. That was Callum Ross speaking with historian David Alston on the slave trade link to a Northeast Teachers Fund. It's not the only important story getting an airing in DC Thompson titles in recent days. We like to lift people's eyes from the Central Belt focus and Holyrood bubble. So let's turn to the best of the rest from the regions that senior politicians should be paying attention to. Nicola Sturgeon got herself into a bit of a tight spot by um, being perceived as not acting very quickly uh, when there was a major job losses story er erupted in Aberdeen. Adele, you've been looking into this. Can you tell us about Stonywood Mill? 
Yeah, so last week, uh, hundreds of workers at Stonywood Paper Mill were very much shell-shocked when they got the news that the site, uh, which is a very historic site in Aberdeen, it's one of, uh, I think it's well, certainly the last of its type in the northeast um announced it was going into administration and that more than 300 people were losing or were being made redundant with immediate effect so we've been covering this one very closely both the historic links and and also more importantly the fact that hundreds of people now at the worst possible time um in memory have now lost their jobs and um you know connected to that is all their families and children they might have and it's just the impact is going to be, I guess, pretty widespread. Um, so the First Minister had come for, in for a bit of criticism, I think, because the news broke last week and it took about a week until we actually heard anything from her. Uh, there are there are reasons why, you know, Parliament sits on certain days, so it breaks on a certain day. It takes an amount of time to, to hear about it at Parliament, but there was just no statements really whatsoever Um so she came in for a bit of criticism because in the past, with some, I guess you could argue, similar instances where things like the Ferguson Marine Yard, which is obviously a whole other story in itself, um, and also the Bifab Yard, I think there's been seen to be more of, I guess, a government presence. There's been visits to these sites. And I think people felt, uh, or certain Northeast MSPs felt that it wasn't being taken, you know, there wasn't enough of a public statement around it. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's obviously a story that's going to run and run um, because you know there's there's now meetings being set up to try and offer advice and help to the to the workers that are affected there. But uh, yeah, the the Scottish government have still got a lot to a lot of input that they could put in there, and not least just a bit of public statements that that people in the in the northeast or beyond uh, Glasgow it, it usually um, often feel a little bit like they're on the peripherals there. Yeah, so I think next week we're due an update early in the week from the administrators in terms of how that process is going. And we've had various sort of job events and support events for workers in the last few days. And uh, I know there's been calls from the sort of Aberdeen Labour Group at the City Council for the government to consider moving the site into public ownership. So whether, uh, you know, I I don't know whether that's something that would even be considered or not, but but we'll certainly be keeping tabs on it in the days and weeks to come. Yeah, you mentioned Ferguson Marine there, which uh, I think is a pretty neat slide into something Justin's been looking at yet again, our special running tally on, on ferries. What's, what's been happening on this one and, and why is it kind of, why, why is it capturing the imagination quite so much? So yeah, this is, I suppose, the story that essentially refuses to go away, isn't it? A BBC Disclosure documentary aired earlier this week um, about, I suppose, the ongoing Ferguson Marine and ferries fiasco. Um, It relates to two contracts to build vessels that Ferguson Marine were given back in 2015. Those vessels are still delayed. They are intended to serve Scotland's island communities. But of course, now those island communities, I suppose, are suffering because those boats aren't there and services are obviously stretched at the moment as well. Um, And what the documentary alleges is that uh, Ferguson Marine were given preferential treatment when bidding for these contracts. So they were given special meetings. They were given opportunities to kind of, I suppose, hash out what it was they were wanting to say. Naturally, this has obviously then sent opposition politicians into a bit of an uproar. They are saying that this needs to be investigated. There has even been talk that the police should be brought in. As always, the Scottish government on this are are being quite reluctant, I I suppose. You know, 
they will always acknowledge that there are problems there. They will understand that there are concerns, but there is no culpability. There is no admission to guilt, I suppose, as well. Nobody is kind of taking overall responsibility for it. So, yeah, I suppose like a lot of the issues that have come up with ferries, it's something that rumbles on. It's something that the government will acknowledge as an issue, but they won't necessarily say how they're going to tackle that issue. And it just seems to be a story that keeps on escalating, especially now when we have talk of police potentially being called in. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's it's a story that sort of bounces from one line to another. So we've been anyone interested in a sort of new reader's start here, peace could do worse than going and looking up on uh, the Courier or the Press and Journal website, where we've compiled a, a helpful little list of all the points as they've rumbled on in the years that have gone by in one handy wee place, which is um, always useful. Derek, what's been catching your eye? Well, <laughs> continuing on the theme of uh, Liz Truss and this sort of economic meltdown, um, I, w- I was really interested in a piece that Callum, uh, Callum Ross wrote this week, which was looking at really how that's going to affect local authorities, local councils. Um, so people will probably be aware that I think, and that may not be all of them, but I think basically all of them, every Scottish council is in, is in debt um, to the Treasury. I think the, the, the figure across a lot of them is around £11 billion. And they do that so that they can fund local services and local projects and you know, big capital projects and things like that. Um, so it's quite common that that's the case. But because of the sort of economic woes that we've seen over the last little while, um, the fixed rate on new borrowing has now hit 5.5%. For context, in the past, that's been often below 2%. So it's quite a big difference. And it actually shot up by more than 1% immediately after Quasi Carting announced his mini budget. So there's there's definitely, once again, an immediate effect coming coming straight from that. In Angus Council's case, they talked about how rising rates and inflation were putting significant strain on their budget. And I think Perthink and Ross, um, their finance chief, described the project the projections, sorry, in his report this week as the most challenging that he's ever had to present to council. Mm-hmm. So just to reiterate, this is not necessarily about like an immediate impact on, on services, but more about the sort of long-term ebbing away. Things just getting a little bit worse again and again and again, forever, basically. Um, things just being more and more difficult. So I think the reason the story resonated with me is because quite often people can look at what's going on at Westminster and think, oh, you know, they're talking about cutting some departments and things like that. It doesn't really affect my life. But actually, these things really do have an effect. And people are going to see it in their day-to-day life. They're going to see it through these services being cut and through different departments and things. It's going to have a real, real impact. And I think it's going to be even more difficult. We've seen councils really struggling in recent years. um, And we're going to see that even more, I think, as a result of this. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks, Derek, for that cheery... Nice doing, Glenn. Conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to end as we start there with... uh, Back to that list trust and Chancellor doubleheader really doing it for the country there and with that it's time to head off so thanks to Callum Ross and David Alston Justin Bowie Derek Healy Adele Merson and producer Morvan McIntyre and of course to you for listening we'll be back next week with more but until then and even after then pick up or log on to The Courier The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed Vistushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. 
Don't miss an episode by following the Stushy Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.